I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. This is the time of year when all the psychics come out of the woodwork and make their prognostications about what's going to happen in the coming year. What continues to amaze me is that they don't seem to be deterred by their poor batting averages. With their tarot cards and their crystal balls, here were some of the predictions they made for last year. That Whitney Houston would marry Mike Tyson. That Peter Jennings would do the evening news from orbit aboard the space shuttle. That a volcanic eruption would create a new land mass tying the United States to Cuba. That 80% of Americans would shave their heads. And that's interesting because they also said that we would discover a cure for baldness. That banana peels would be found to cure cancer that Lance Ito would become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, that Rush Limbaugh would lose his fortune and become destitute, forced on welfare, he would become a Democrat. That's not a very good batting average. Uh, If you're still interested, here are a few for 1997, that Americans will get $1,000 for every career criminal they kill, that Hawaii will sink into the ocean, and that Jim Baker's ex-wife, Tammy Faye, will be appointed ambassador to Israel. When you strike out that many times, that that kind of stuff doesn't belong on the news pages, it belongs in the comics. And yet, it seems there's a growing interest in peeking into the future. We see the Psychic Friends Network raking in the dollars, We hear of clairvoyance being used in criminal investigations. Some people wouldn't walk across the street without consulting their horoscope. We had a recent first lady, Nancy Reagan, who had her own personal psychic advisor. We have a present first lady who admittedly has conversations with Eleanor Roosevelt about what she's supposed to do. Everyone seems to be grasping for some handle on the future. And with the year 2000 just less than three years away, it seems the question on everyone's mind is what comes next? What does the next millennium hold? Well, I know the answer to that question. And to find the answer to that question, you don't need to ask Gene Dixon or Mystic Meg or any of the other pop psychics today. For the answer to that question, you need to go back about 2,500 years to a seer who was ten times wiser than anyone in his day, who possessed an extraordinary spirit, who understood visions and dreams, who was consulted by the kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia, who didn't just make predictions about what was going to happen in the next year, but made predictions that are still unfolding in our day. And, of course, I'm speaking about Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are practical. The last six chapters are prophetic. The first six chapters talk about the man. The last six chapters talk about his message. And this morning, we want to begin that last section of Daniel learning about his prophetic message. And in the first part of chapter 7, we're going to see that he lays out the divine forecast for all of human history. Speaking about chapter 7, John Walford said, it provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events found anywhere in the Old Testament. 
Now, this chapter is fundamental in our understanding of biblical prophecy because it provides for us the broad framework into which we can fit many of the specific prophecies in Scripture. Now, the setting is given to us in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. When Daniel left his furry friends in the lion's den, we don't follow him down the street to his next adventure. Instead, we are transported back to the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. Modern writers refer to this as a flashback. He takes us back 15 years to a dream he had in 553 B.C. And so chronologically, chapter 7 fits between chapters 4 and And unlike the previous dreams in this book, which occurred to Nebuchadnezzar, this dream comes directly to Daniel. And in chapter 7, he gives us a summary of it. Notice verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, in Daniel's dream, he's standing by the great sea. Now, when we think of the sea, we think of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. But Daniel is not imagining that he's standing on the beach at Daytona. The Bible only mentions four seas. The Sea of Galilee, which was really a lake. The Dead Sea, which wasn't a whole lot larger. The Red Sea, which was kind of a long, narrow body of water. And the Mediterranean Sea, which on several occasions in Scripture is referred to the same way Daniel refers to this sea as the Great Sea. So in Daniel's dream, he envisions himself back in his homeland, standing on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And in prophecy, consistently, the sea represents the Gentile nations. In Revelation chapter 17, John sees a harlot sitting on many waters. And the angel interprets it this way in verse 15. He says, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The waters represent the nations. We use the expression today, a sea of humanity. So as Daniel looks out on the sea, he is looking out upon the nations. And we're told that the four winds are stirring up the sea. Now, when it mentions the four winds, I think it's simply talking about the four directions of the wind. North, south, east, west. Daniel's looking on the sea, the nations. The winds are coming, and they are stirring up the nations. The nations are in an uproar. And that's pretty well consistently the way the nations are. There is always political upheaval, uprisings, wars, bloodshed. That is the consistent nature of the nations. So these winds are stirring up the sea. And as Daniel looks on, verse 3 says, And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Out of these turbulent waters emerged four of the ugliest zoo animals you can imagine. Verse 4 says, The first was like a lion. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. Verse 6, after this I kept looking, and behold, another like a leopard. Verse 7, after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. You say, this is why I can't understand prophecy. 
because uh, this is too strange. I mean, how do you interpret that? Well, you know, the beautiful thing about prophecy is that we're not left up to our own imagination. And when Daniel has a dream like this, we also get the interpretation. And if you'll just slide down in the chapter to verse 17... We read there, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. And so the four beasts are four kings. More particularly, if you slide down to verse 23, it says, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And so these beasts are really four kingdoms that will come upon the earth. And so when we read about these beasts coming up, they're not predecessors to the Loch Ness Monster. They are symbols which represent the nature of certain kingdoms. And when he talks about these four beasts coming out of the sea, they don't all come out at the same time. They come out in succession. And the reason I say that is if you look at verse 6, it says, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one. Verse 7, after this I kept looking, and behold, a fourth beast. And so they come up one after another. This is the chronology of the great kingdoms of the world. And as such, it parallels Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the great statue. It had the head of gold, which was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It had the chest and arms of silver, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. It had the belly of bronze, which was Greece. And it had the legs of iron, which was Rome. What's What's interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, saw human history from man's viewpoint, a monument to man. Daniel, God's man, sees human history from God's viewpoint. And what is it? It's ugly monstrosities. Nebuchadnezzar sees the history of man and it's an accomplishment to humanity. God sees the same thing as wild, uncontrolled beasts. Now let's look at these four kingdoms. The first beast is in verse 4. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. The first beast, notice it's not a lion. He says it is like a lion. And when we think about a lion, what do we think about? We think about the king of the beasts. And not only that, but it says it also had the wings of an eagle. And when we think of an eagle, what do we think about? Well, we think about the king of the birds. So this is a pretty majestic beast. It's like a lion and it has the wings of an eagle. And as we know from chapter 2, he's speaking here about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4-7 uses similar analogy when he says, a lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. And if you read that passage, he's talking there about Babylon. Babylon was the lion. What's interesting is that the Ishtar Gate was the main entrance into the city of Babylon. And there's a replica of it in the Berlin Museum showing that on the entrance gate to the city of Babylon were two winged lions guarding the city. And so the winged lion was a known symbol of Babylon. Well, what's interesting in this verse is it says, Daniel kept looking and its wings were plucked off. 
It was lifted up. It was made to stand on two feet. And a human mind was given to it. Now, what's that describing? Well, that's describing what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. You remember, he was made to live with the beast for seven years, out on all fours, living like a beast until God gave his reason back to him and he got back up on two feet and began to live like a man. And so here's the picture of Babylon. It's, a, it's like a lion with the wings of an eagle and the experience it goes through is the very experience that Nebuchadnezzar encountered because he is the lion. Which brings us to the second beast in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now, the kingdom that followed Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire, and it's represented here as like a bear. Less majestic than the first beast, not as swift as the first beast, but very ferocious. This is not a teddy bear. Uh, it's told to arise, devour much meat. Now, how does a kingdom devour? Well, it conquers other kingdoms, and it extends its borders. And we know that the Medo-Persian Empire extended its kingdom far beyond the Babylonian Empire. It devoured much meat. And that's symbolized here by the fact that you'll see it had three ribs in its mouth. Uh, most commentators think that represents the three primary nations that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. And what's also interesting here is it says the bear, or the beast, like a bear, is raised up on one side. Which means it's not standing there like you see some bears with both front legs up in the air. It's got one leg up in the air, which tells us that one side of the bear is dominant. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire was sort of a co-empire, but we know that the Persian side was the dominant side, and so we see the picture here in the illustration that the one side is dominant on this bear. Third beast, verse 6. You still with me? Hang in there. Third beast, verse 6. After this, I kept looking... And behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The third beast was like a leopard. Now, what's the characteristic of a leopard? It's swift. It springs on its prey. Habakkuk emphasizes that characteristic in Habakkuk 1.8. He says, their horses are swifter than leopards. And so the leopard is swift, and to accent that characteristic even more so, we're told here that this beast also has four wings. So it's a leopard, which is swift already, and then it's got wings to make it even quicker. Who defeated the Persian Empire and became the third world empire? Greece. And what characterized Greece? It was swift. Under Alexander the Great, they conquered the civilized world within 13 years. And Alexander the Great took 35,000 soldiers up against the Persian Empire, which had nearly 300,000 soldiers, and miraculously won. And everybody said it was because of the military genius of Alexander. But you know what it says at the end of verse 6? 
it says, and dominion was given to him. The real reason was not his military strategy. The real reason was that God gave it to him. And God recorded it through Daniel 200 years before Alexander was ever born. He would be the third world empire. And like a lot of world leaders, Alexander could conquer anyone and everyone but himself. And we're told he died as a victim of his own lust at the age of only 32. You say, well, what's this deal about four heads? Well, when Alexander died... His kingdom was divided among his four main generals. Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And so at the end of this kingdom, it was really a four-headed, four-king kingdom. Which brings us to the fourth beast, verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and it had large iron teeth it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that were before it now this fourth beast isn't said to be like any animal in fact the only comparison Daniel makes is that he says it was different from all the beasts that were before it it's like he says I can't even compare it to any animal it was just different from all the other beasts. And he goes on to describe it as dreadful and terrifying, instilling fear. It was extremely strong, powerful and mighty. It had large iron teeth with which it crushed and devoured. And those that it didn't devour with its teeth were told it trampled down with its feet. Now, you'll remember from back in chapter 2 that this fourth kingdom is Rome. And the Roman Empire was ruthless. In describing the Roman Empire, Herbert Leupold said, Rome could never get enough of conquest. Of all the empires, it was the most cruel. It was Rome that crucified Peter. It was Rome that beheaded Paul. It was Rome that banished John to the island of Patmos. It was Rome that burned Christians. It was Rome that crucified the Lord Jesus. Rome is this terrifying, crushing beast. And what's interesting to me is that, again, we can see the deterioration of the nations. Nebuchadnezzar's dream began with the head of gold and worked its way down to the feet of mud. Daniel's dream begins with the noble lion, king of the beasts, and ends up with some nondescript creature. And again, we, we're reminded that the kingdoms are not evolving, they're devolving. Now, if you notice the end of verse 7, it says that this fourth beast had ten horns. You say, well, what does that mean? We'll slide down again in the chapter to verse 24. And there we read, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And so these ten horns are ten kings. But that's not all. Look at verse 8. 
while I was contemplating the horns, while, while I was thinking about these ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. While the ten horns are in place, another horn, a little horn, uproots three of those horns, and this horn, we're told, has the eyes of a man and a mouth and is uttering great boasts. In other words, he's tooting his own horn. You say, well, who is this talking about? Well, for the answer to that question, you don't need to look back in history. For the answer to that question, you need to look forward into prophecy. Because what's described at the end of verse 7 and verse 8 is referring to a time yet in the future. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because this never happened in the history of the Roman Empire. There was never a time when there was ten kings reigning over the Roman Empire. And secondly, if you look at verses 9 and 10, Daniel looks ahead to a time when God will be sitting on his throne in judgment over the nations. And at that very point in time, notice verse 11. It says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Daniel says, I look forward, I see God on his throne judging the nations, and guess whose voice he hears? The voice of this little horn boasting about how great he is, which tells me that this little horn is going to be in existence when God has his final judgment day on the nations. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 11... It describes his end. It says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. There's the demise of this horn and the beast, the kingdom, which it represents. And then if you look at uh, verse 13, it tells us the next thing that happens, verses 13 and 14, is the coming in of the kingdom of Christ. Now, that's the same chronology we saw back in Daniel chapter 2. You remember there the, the great statue beginning with the head of gold. It went all the way down to the ten toes of clay. And the end of the statue was that a rock cut out without hands came and hit it in the feet and destroyed the whole statue. And then that rock grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. That rock which came was Christ and his kingdom grew throughout the whole earth. And so he strikes the statue in the ten toes, the final representation of that Roman Empire destroys it and sets up his kingdom. Here in Daniel chapter 7, same scenario, ten horns, ten kings over the Roman Empire, they will be destroyed, and then Christ is going to set up his kingdom. Now, let me just add a little footnote here, and that is if you're really going to understand prophecy, you have to realize that there's a gap in Old Testament prophecy. There's a gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the Old Testament prophets did not understand that. And that's, that's what's referred to in the New Testament as the mystery. The mystery is the church. And where does the church fit? The church fits between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the Old Testament prophets couldn't understand that. And that's why they had trouble discerning between the prophecies about Christ as a servant and Christ as a king. They didn't understand that he was going to come the first time as a servant to die, he was going to come the first time as the lamb to take away the sin of the world. He was going to come the second time as the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to set up his kingdom. 
And so in the Old Testament, you always see a gap there. They didn't understand that. Just to illustrate that, I want you to look over at Isaiah chapter 61 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now that is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about Jesus Christ. When he comes, it says he would preach good news to the afflicted, he would bind up the brokenhearted, uh, proclaim liberty to the captives, he would set free the prisoners, he would proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now that's not talking about a calendar year, that's talking about the period of time when salvation would be proclaimed. But if you'll notice the next phrase in verse 2, it says after it's saying to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now has that happened? Did Jesus come and bring the vengeance of God? No. That's still in the future. That's when he comes with a flaming sword in his mouth to judge the nations. What's interesting is in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, and he quotes all the way down to the phrase to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he stops. Why? Because the next phrase is at least 2,000 years in the future, and Jesus knows that. But as you read Isaiah 61, there's a gap between the first phrase in verse 2 and the second phrase in verse 2, and the Old Testament prophets didn't see that. And so what I'm saying is to understand prophecy, you have to understand that there's often a gap there. And we see that gap when we come back to Daniel chapter 7. You see, if you take the gap out of the picture, then the Roman Empire was in existence in the first century when Jesus came the first time. And when Jesus comes the second time, guess what? The Roman Empire is going to be in existence again as the world ruler. Take the gap out, it fits right together. But what Daniel didn't understand was there was a gap there. So he doesn't explain our day when we look around and say, where's the Roman Empire? It's not here. Because it existed in the first century, it will exist again in the future, and in the future it will be in the form of a ten-kingdom confederacy. And out of that confederacy will come a little horn who will be the Antichrist. Now, we're not going to talk about him today because we're going to talk about him next week because Daniel's real curious about him too and he asked some questions about him and we're going to see that at the end of our chapter. So come back next year, next week, I'm sorry. <laughs> come back next year too. But come back next week and we'll talk about the Antichrist and this final form of the Roman Empire in some detail next week. This morning, I want to try to end on a little more positive note. This morning, I want us to talk about this uh, final kingdom that is coming. Verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Now, Daniel gets this vision of heaven, and he sees the Ancient of Days. Now, some people say that's Christ, but that's not Christ, because when we get to verse 13, we're going to find that one like a son of man comes up to the Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days here is God the Father, and 
Daniel sees him sitting on his throne. Now, what's interesting is, in the first part of verse 9, it says, there were other thrones set up. You say, well, what are these other thrones? Well, we have a parallel passage to this in Revelation 4 and 5. And if you read those chapters, you'll find there that, again, God the Father is seated on his throne, and he's got a scroll in his hand. And that scroll is really the title deed to the earth, and we're told that no one could open the scroll. And so John begins to cry because no one can open the scroll. And then he's told that the lion from the tribe of David, or of the tribe of Judah, will come and open the scroll. And what we see is not a lion, but we see a lamb standing as if slain, the Lord Jesus. He comes and takes the scroll out of the hand of the Father, and he begins to open that scroll, which is really the title deed to him taking over the earth. And if you read Revelation chapter 4, you will find that there were also 24 thrones there on which were seated the elders. And so when we come back here to Daniel's prophecy, he mentions the throne. And the picture he paints for us here is that God is seated on his throne, and it's obviously a time of judgment. He is dressed in white. His hair is white, which speaks of purity. He's the one who is qualified to judge. And it's obviously a time of judgment because it says his throne was on fire. The wheels of his throne, and don't ask me why his, wheel, his throne has wheels, I don't know. But the wheels were on fire, and a, a river, if you like, was flowing out from his throne, and it was also on fire. And the end of verse 10 says, and the court sat. In other words, court was in session. And then it says, and the books were open. Now, what were in the books? Well, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 describes a future judgment where men are going to be judged, and it says they will be judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And so God has books on the deeds of man. And on this occasion, he is judging the nations. The books are open, and he's dealing with them. Verse 11, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Here's the judgment of this fourth kingdom. It is taken and it is thrown into the fire. Verse 12, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now that's an interesting verse. And I think what that verse is saying is that when the other beasts had their dominion taken away, they sort of lived on in the next beast. Everybody in the kingdom wasn't destroyed. They moved on into the next kingdom, and characteristics of the previous kingdom were oftentimes carried over. When Babylon was destroyed, characteristics of Babylon went into the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, when we get to the last empire, Revelation chapter 17 refers to that last empire as what? Mystery Babylon. And so the characteristics of these others often carried into the next kingdom. But what he's saying in verse 12 is that when the final kingdom comes, when the fourth kingdom is destroyed, nothing's going to carry over into the next kingdom because the next kingdom, which is the kingdom of Christ, is going to be altogether different. Notice verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Daniel sees this fourth kingdom go into the fire and then it says he kept looking to see what was going to happen next. And what did he see? It says he saw 
the clouds of heaven. That's Jesus' trademark right there. Speaking about this same event, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And in Revelation 1, 7, we read, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Daniel looks and he sees the clouds, and with the clouds he sees one like a Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? That's Jesus. In fact, the phrase, Son of Man is the title Jesus used most often of himself. Why? Because he wants us to know that this is him. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who is given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is going to come, set up his kingdom, and he's going to do it right. And verse 14 gives us five characteristics of his kingdom real quickly. Number one, unlimited authority. It says, to him was given dominion. The kings of this world have authority, but Jesus will have it all. He said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He'll have unlimited authority. Secondly, this kingdom will be unique. Notice what else he's given. He's not only given dominion, he is given glory. This will be a kingdom full of glory. Now, some people look back in history and they say, those were the golden days, or that was the golden age. Well, they haven't seen anything yet. Because when Jesus sets up his kingdom, it's going to be filled with glory. I love the statement in Revelation 21, 23. It says, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That kingdom is going to be so filled with glory, we're not going to need the sun, because Jesus is going to radiate the light of glory in that kingdom. It will be unique. Thirdly, it will be unified, verse 14. It says that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Whenever we see a king today, he rallies people together, but there's always a group of people that don't go along with the program. There's always a group of people that are potentially rebels in the kingdom. But here it says, all the people, north, west, east, south, every corner of the globe, they're all going to be united with one purpose, and that will be to serve him. Fourth characteristic, it will be unending. Verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Other world kingdoms come and go. This kingdom is eternal. And then the fifth characteristic, it is unconquerable. The end of verse 14, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Other kings reign until someone more powerful comes along. But in Jesus' case, he is the all-powerful God. And so no one else is going to come along. That's his kingdom. Do you want a prediction this morning about the future that's certain? Daniel gave it 2,500 years ago. And I'll say this to you this morning. You don't have to worry about nuclear destruction. You don't have to worry about global warming. You don't have to worry about holes in the ozone because the earth is not going to be destroyed that way. Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom on this earth. So the only thing you need to be concerned about this morning is whether you're going to be in that kingdom or not. And how do you get into that kingdom? 
Jesus said in John 3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What's that mean? That means to humble your heart, to repent, to allow him to come in and make you new, to give you his life, and to reign in you, to set up his throne in your life. And when you do, you don't have to worry about the books because they've all been paid for. The only book that's going to matter in that day for those of us who are believers is the book of life where our name is written. And you won't have to worry about peeking into the future and wondering what's going to happen next because you can walk into the future with confidence because you have a promise that your king is coming. Amen.